On January 23, 1968, the USS Pueblo, a U.S. Navy intelligence gathering ship, was on a routine surveillance mission in international waters off the coast of North Korea. While on surveillance duty, it was intercepted by North Korean patrol boats. Shots were fired, the crew was captured, and it set off one of the biggest international incidents of the Cold War. Learn more about the Pueblo incident, how and why it happened, on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. Summer is right around the corner, and that means cookouts. No matter what your preferred food is for a cookout or a barbecue, ButcherBox can help you make it the best. If you want to serve up some hamburgers, ButcherBox has grass-fed ground beef to make the perfect smash burger. Want to cook up some steaks? Well, ButcherBox has that too, with some of the best cuts of steaks such as New York Strip, ribeye, and filet mignon. Do you like grilled chicken? Well, ButcherBox has some of the best pasture-raised chicken that you will find anywhere. And if you really want to wow people at your next cookout, you can try grilling some of their wild-caught salmon on a cedar plank. Sign up at ButcherBox.com daily and get a special deal. ButcherBox is offering my listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com daily and use code daily to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935 after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. One thing to understand which underlines this entire episode is that, technically speaking, the Korean War never ended. There was never a formal peace treaty that was put into place to end the conflict. There was only a ceasefire, which is still in effect today. So as far as North Korea was concerned, they were at war. A war that started in 1950, but at least mentally, was still ongoing. The ship which would become the USS Pueblo began its life in 1944 as a U.S. Army freight and passenger ship. There were a lot of such ships built during the war, and when it was launched, it didn't even merit a name. It was simply known as FP-344. It was used as a training vessel manned by the Coast Guard in the last days of the war, and it was out of commission by 1954. Fast forward to 1964. The United States is in the middle of the Cold War. The U.S. Navy engaged in radio surveillance and had a small number of ships that were outfitted for the task. They would intercept radio signals from communist bloc countries and then decrypt the signals that they would intercept. This was pretty standard practice for both sides during the Cold War, and it's something that's going on today. Radio waves are sent out into the ether and can be picked up by pretty much everyone. 
However, to receive the signal, depending on the strength and frequency which is being used, you have to be in the right place. Hence the need for ships that could be parked off the coast of a country just to listen to radio waves. The Navy's radio surveillance ships were rather big and bulky, and they wanted smaller, cheaper, and more flexible ships. As part of the solution in 1966, they took FP-344 out of retirement and renamed it the Pueblo, after the city in Colorado. The ship's captaincy was assigned to Lloyd Butcher, who was involved with the renovation and retrofitting of the ship. The Navy put money into the ship, but they also skimped on some very important things that would become relevant later. For example, they didn't upgrade the engine, even though there were previous engine problems when the ship was recently taken out. It was a spy ship, but the Navy wouldn't install higher-end incinerators to more quickly and efficiently burn classified documents if necessary. They had to use a burn barrel, which was much slower. Likewise, a request for an emergency system to scuttle the ship so it couldn't fall into enemy hands was also denied. On top of that, there was no deck gun for the ship. When the ship arrived at the U.S. naval base in Yokosuka, Japan, the captain installed two fifty caliber machine guns. However, the crew had basically no training with the guns, and they were installed in such a way that they weren't protected, and they had very little ammunition. So basically, it was a really small ship with very sensitive intelligence material, with poor capabilities to destroy that material if they needed to, not enough firepower, and engines incapable of running away. With that, on January 11, 1968, the Pueblo set off from Sasebo, Japan, on a joint Navy-National Security Agency assignment. Their mission was to sit in the Sea of Japan and listen for North Korean and Soviet radio signals. The explicit instructions given to the ship were to come no closer than 13 nautical miles to the shore. Here I should note that it is almost universally agreed upon that international waters begin at 12 nautical miles off the coast of any country. This was the limit used throughout the Cold War. Soviet and American ships would go up to 12 nautical miles all the time because it was perfectly legal. North Korea, however, claimed its territorial waters out to 50 nautical miles. The 13-mile rule was established by the Navy just as a precaution so they wouldn't risk sailing into territorial waters. On January 16th, the Pueblo reached the 42nd parallel, where they would start their patrol. The basic mission was to move to 13 nautical miles offshore during the day, and then move to about 18 to 20 nautical miles at night. They were soon discovered. On January 20th, they were identified by a North Korean subchaser. On January 22nd, two North Korean fishing ships came within 30 meters of the Pueblo. What the Pueblo was unaware of was on that very day, there was a North Korean assassination attempt on the South Korean president in Seoul. On January 23rd, the Pueblo was again approached by another subchaser, but this time they challenged the nationality of the ship. The Pueblo raised the American flag and sent out civilians to take water samples, as their cover story was that they were a research vessel. The North Koreans ordered the Pueblo to stand down and fired warning shots. Soon, three more North Korean ships appeared on the horizon, and two North Korean MiG fighter jets flew over the ship. The Pueblo radioed to Fleet Command to tell them what was happening, and they actually promised to send air support, but nothing ever came. All of the design problems I outlined with the Pueblo came home to roost at this point. The crew tried to burn their classified material, but they couldn't burn it fast enough. They were getting shot at, but they didn't have the firepower to shoot back. And they were being chased, but they didn't have a good enough engine to outrun the North Korean vessels. After two hours of trying to outmaneuver the North Korean ships, the Pueblo was finally boarded, and the crew was captured. Eighty-three crew members were taken prisoner of war, and one was killed. This was a massive embarrassment for the United States, and sparked a huge diplomatic incident. Opinions on what should be done by members of Congress and the Johnson cabinet were all over the place. They ranged from a nuclear strike, to a blockade of North Korea, to negotiations at the United Nations. 
The crew was taken to prisoner of war camps where they claimed that they were starved and tortured. The North Koreans took photos of the prisoners, but the prisoners sent secret codes in the photos. All of the prisoners would have their middle fingers extended in the photos. They told the North Koreans that it was a Hawaiian sign for good luck. When the North Koreans found out what it really meant, they were further punished. North Koreans demanded signed confessions. They threatened to execute Captain Bush's crew in front of him, so he eventually relented and signed a confession. However, when he did, he put puns into his confession that the North Koreans didn't understand. For example, he wrote the following, quote, We pee on the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. We pee on their great leader, Kim Il-sung, end quote. He wrote peon, P-E-A-N, which the verb means to sing praise. However, it's pronounced peon. Negotiations between the United States and North Korea took place in Panmunjom, which is in the demilitarized zone, and I've talked about that in a previous episode. The talks were difficult because the North Koreans literally had a box of index cards, and every time the Americans brought up a point, they responded with what was written on one of the cards. If the Americans brought up something that there wasn't a card for, the North Koreans would stall and adjourn and come back with new cards that had a reply. Eventually, after a public apology by the United States for spying, the prisoners were released on December 23rd, 11 months after the incident took place. The prisoner exchange took place on the Bridge of No Return in the DMZ. The Navy actually considered court-martialing Captain Butcher for giving up the ship without a fight, but decided not to because he had already been through enough, and a public court-martial of a prisoner of war would probably turn public opinion even further against the military, which is already having issues in the middle of the Vietnam War. The crew may have been released, but the ship is still in possession of North Korea, and it's now a tourist attraction in Pyongyang. The ship is still considered to be in commission by the U.S. Navy, and it is the second oldest ship in commission after the USS Constitution, which is over 200 years old. The Return of the Pueblo is still a bargaining ship in talks between the United States and North Korea. So with 50 years of hindsight, what exactly did happen? For starters, as far as we know, the Soviets had nothing to do with it. By all accounts, they were just as surprised as the Americans were at the whole incident. Second, by Captain Butcher's own account after he was released, they didn't have very good navigators on board the ship. It is entirely possible that they were, in fact, in North Korean waters. The biggest thing was that the Americans just didn't anticipate any of this happening. They were used to spying on the Soviets, and the Soviets spied on the Americans. There was reciprocity involved. If the Soviets had captured an American ship, the Americans could do the same to the Soviets. That was why it never happened. However, there was no reciprocity with the North Koreans. When the North Koreans captured a ship off their coast, the Americans couldn't do the same in return. To close, I should note that the survivors of the Pueblo incident took the North Korean government to court in the United States for damages. In 2021, a court awarded the Pueblo survivors and their families $2.3 billion. To date, the North Korean government hasn't paid anything. Everything Everywhere Daily is an Airwave Media podcast. The associate producers are Thor Thompson and Peter Bennett. I have some more Boostagrams to read. Remember, Boostagrams are short messages attached to small Bitcoin donations sent via modern podcast apps like Fountain or Castomatic. Petar sent me 1,234 sats for my episode on the Ides of March. He asked, why didn't Cicero partake in the assassination of Julius Caesar? Well, that's a good question with a very simple answer. He wasn't asked. The conspirators only invited those senators who were their peers, which were men around the age of 40. 
Cicero was in his 60s at this time, and they didn't invite anyone old because they felt it might slow things down or they might not have supported it. After the fact, he was quoted as having said to the conspirators that he wished he was, quote, invited to that superb banquet. I think I could probably do an entire episode on Cicero in the future, as in addition to his political legacy, he was one of the greatest orators and writers of the ancient world. Dave Jones sent 2,112 sats for the episode on Abdul Rahman Ibrahim Ibn Sori. He wrote, Excellent episode. I just sent it to my wife. I think she will really enjoy it as it fits with a lot of her personal studies of the history of enslaved African peoples. Thanks, Gary. Well, thank you, Dave. I think there are a lot of future episodes on this subject. Much of it is finding a way to look at a subject in a way that I can cover adequately on an episode of this podcast. It's a really big topic area, and I just need to pare down manageable stories within the bigger picture. Remember, if you leave a review or send me a boostagram, you too can have it read on the show.